You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 21. Science and Poetry. Hello, and welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison, and I'm recording this from an abandoned cruise ship run aground on an uncharted island. Before we get started, I wanted to stop and thank Claudia Woodman. My already thin knowledge of the local music scene was stretched completely to the breaking point, and I was beginning to panic a little. But Claudia stepped in and has put the show in touch with some amazing local bands and artists. So thank you, Claudia. I was beginning to worry, and now I'm not. Also, did I mention the bands have been uniformly great? Because they are. Although it may be too late by the time I mention this, there will be a Denver Orbit show live in Fort Collins, May 25th, which is today at 6 p.m. So you should go to that if you can. Check out the Facebook page for details. And if you're listening in the future, boy, was that a great show. On with today's program, then. We have a story from astrobiologist Graham Lau, a song from The Far Stairs, and a few poems from Joy Sawyer. I saw Dr. Graham Lau at the very last event at the Deer Pile called Extraterrestrial Alien Places Here on Earth, along with Julia DeMarines. I thought it may be fun to have him on the show to share one of his stories. And here it is. I am Dr. Graham Lau, a recently minted PhD. I I earned my PhD this past August. Uh, My studies in the sciences started, um, gosh, 14, 15 years ago now. Uh, I started off studying biology and chemistry, earned a few undergraduate degrees, uh, and then came out here to Colorado to start studying astrophysics as an undergraduate and, and felt like I was getting too old to do that anymore. So I decided to jump into the PhD program in geology. And so I earned my PhD in geology at CU Boulder, um, doing some research on a really unique place in the high Arctic up on Ellesmere Island in northern Canada. This place is called Borpfjord Pass. Uh, It's a a north-south trending valley where a coalescence glacier in the middle of the valley uh, where it's exposed at the surface. Back in 1988, a researcher flying overhead noticed some yellow material on top of the glacier. And so my collaborator, Steve Grasby, uh, he's a researcher up in Canada uh, with Natural Resources Canada and the Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, he decided to go there and check out this yellow material on top of this glacier and discovered it was, it was elemental sulfur. Uh, sulfur can be in many forms in the environment, uh, from hydrogen sulfide, that smell of rotten eggs, uh, the whole way to sulfates, uh, things like gypsum, which are in drywall. Uh, And seeing this elemental sulfur in this large area, uh, tens to to, uh, hundreds of thousands of square meters uh, in this valley at this glacier, uh, suggested something very unique happening geochemically and and perhaps biologically. And so Steve started studying that field site and learning more about what the process that was occurring. Uh, And then when I came to my graduate program, I, I started doing some research here as well. 
this field site, Borpfjord Pass, it turns out is a really good analog for the surface of Europa, the moon of Jupiter. And let me explain why. So at the glacier surface, there's hydrogen sulfide rich fluid, so sulfide rich waters coming up from the subsurface, from the ground below the glacier and making its way through the glacier and then coming out on the surface and where it gets exposed to oxygen then, it's turning into elemental sulfur, which is naturally yellow in coloration. Uh, and so when we see these large mats of elemental sulfur at the surface, it's showing us where that sulfide-rich fluid is changing at the surface. Uh, and we know that the surface of Europa uh, has these long cracks called Linnea uh, at its surface with a very voluminous ocean down below its icy surface. And so if there's a chance that that fluid is coming up to the surface through the ice, then borup is a really good analog for us to maybe study some of those geochemical and biological processes that are occurring. And so I got the opportunity, fortunately, through a NASA exobiology grant back in the summer of 2014. Uh, our research group went up there. Uh, it was my collaborator, Steve Grasby, uh, from Natural Resources Canada, myself and Alexis Templeton from CU Boulder, uh, and then John Spear and Chris Trivetti from the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, we went to bore up for a two-week excursion to study the geochemistry of the sulfur at the surface of the glacier and to take a lot of samples for trying to understand the biology and to what level and, and, and in which ways microorganisms are involved in, in eating up that sulfide and that sulfur at the surface of the glacier and in, in processing these materials. So this was in the, in the summer of 2014, one of those points in the year where uh, anywhere above the Arctic Circle, the sun never sets. And so our field site is 81 degrees north and roughly 81 degrees west. And so the sun, during the whole time we were there, just did big circles in the sky and, and never went down. It was very eerie to get used to. The craziest thing that happened to us while we were there, on our very first day of field work, we had gone out and done a hike around the valley to explore some of the geology, to look at the glacier, and to get a good feeling for, for the site. Uh, and this large amount of ice that was stained yellow and, and very rich in hydrogen sulfide and had that smell of hydrogen sulfide, this rotten egg kind of stink to it. As we were exploring the glacier, we had come down to this region where the glacier's toe kind of met down in the valley and, and there was a, a glacial crevasse coming out at that point. And my collaborator, Steve Grasby, he'd gone up on top of the glacier for a moment while the rest of us were taking some chemical measurements. And, you know, we were down there working for maybe 40 minutes and then Steve came back down and he was really wet. And we're like, you know, what, what happened, Steve? Uh, turns out he had fallen, slipped into the top of the crevasse, uh, luckily at a point where it wasn't very, you know, far down. And so he wasn't injured, but he'd gotten very wet. And so he was really cold and he wanted to head back towards the camp. And, and we're very lucky for that uh, because it turns out Steve falling into this crevasse had triggered a very unique event that sometimes happens in glacial environments. As we started walking away from this region right at the mouth of that crevasse, uh, we started hearing this, this little noise and at first I thought it, maybe it was just me. I kind of heard this buzzing, almost like a bumblebee kind of zzzz in my ear. And then the noise got a little bit louder, almost like a helicopter, a little ways overhead, you know, the chopper sound kind of going. 
And that's when I, I looked at my, my, my collaborator, Chris, and I'm like, do you hear that? And you know, he nods his head, yeah. And, and by this time, the noise had really picked up. It almost felt like a, like a gas-powered generator kind of, you know, somewhere beside me, just kind of ripping. Uh, and then I started feeling the ground shake below my feet. And that's when, that's when I really knew things were wrong. And so just at that moment, we, we turned back around towards this crevasse at the toe of the glacier. And out of nowhere, it seemed, this giant wall of ice and, and water came flying out of the glacier. Uh, and you know the, the five of us had no idea what to do. We, we simply ran for our lives, you know, just in case this thing was going to be a massive explosion of glacial ice. We didn't know how far we'd have to run, so we just we ran for the highest safe ground we could find nearby. Uh, and we're very lucky, actually, that Steve had gotten so wet and wanted to go back to the campsite, because when that ice came out of the glacier, it, it fell right where we had been only moments before, I mean, 30 seconds before. And I've, I've done an estimate that maybe 12 tons or so of ice and water came flying out of that crevasse at us. And this, this event actually has a name. It's called a yoikelhop. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's an Icelandic word. Uh, and it basically happens uh, in environments where, where glaciers can basically explode and blow a lot of material out. Uh, sometimes they can be extremely devastating. In Iceland, for instance, if a volcano erupts under a glacier, then that water can actually flood towns and, and can destroy a lot. And we're very lucky that the Jökulhop that happened to us was a supraglacial one. So supra means on top of the glacier. Uh, and so this is water that had melted out during that early part of the summer and was built up just under the, the very thin veneer of ice at the top of the glacier. And Steve's falling down into the crevasse kind of precipitated the event that allowed then all of the rest of the water stored up on the surface of the glacier to come down and basically clean that crevasse you know, out of all the ice and snow that was inside of it. And so we were very fortunate to have survived because we had two great weeks of research after that that then led to me receiving my PhD. Um, but it was definitely a harrowing experience at our field site in the north. Dr. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and communicator of science. He's pursued an education in biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and geology, and has been lucky enough to travel to some awesome places in the name of science. Dr. Lau currently serves as the Director of Communications and Marketing for Blue Marble Space, a nonprofit focused on developing international collaboration in sustainable living, earth system science, and space exploration. You can find Dr. Lau on Twitter and Instagram, with the handle at Cosmobiologist and at his website, Cosmobiota.com. I'll have all of these links in the show notes. And if you're on the World Wide Web and looking for some complete nonsense, why, I have the place for you, friend. Denver Orbit's Instagram. It doesn't really have anything to do with the show, but, well, I'm not even sure how to finish that sentence. Go check it out at Denver underscore Orbit. 
Hey, are you enjoying the show? Well, in that case, why not give us a rating and a review over on iTunes or whatever podcast thing you use? It'll make the show more visible and everything will grow and everyone will always be happy forever. Now, one of the bands Claudia sent my way is called The Far Stairs. They currently have an album out called Figure One, and this is the title track from that album. And I spent my life trying to win at everything Shouting about how Money's not love, money's not love, money's not love Love is money, but money's not love Love is money, but money's not love Love is money, but money's not love Gonna write this down Gonna write this down Gonna write this down I'm gonna write this down The Far Stairs is the brainchild of Jesse Livingston, formerly of Denver band Hindershot. Livingston wrote and recorded 62 songs before ever playing a show. The live band formed in 2015, and after several lineup changes, found its heart and soul in Michelle Bailey, Andrew Diaz, and Chris McMasters. On May 4, 2018, The Far Stairs released their first album as a full band. Figure One takes the introspective sparkle of their earlier work and kicks it into high gear with a dose of manic rock and roll intensity, finally matching the frank desperation of the lyrics. The songs are about how it's too late for most things, despite the fact that we spend the majority of our time living in the past. The band brings the wild energy of their stage shows to these recordings, pouring their hearts into very personal expressions of grief, rage, fear, and longing. But also, you can dance to it. Like a field of dandelions rooted in ever-expanding darkness, the songs on figure one sketch small portraits of lost souls, realizing their mistakes a few minutes too late. 
In addition to Radio Play, the Farstairs have had their music featured on various podcasts and recently inside a hollow tree, an installation by local artist Nikki Pike, finally realizing their life goal to fill an empty park with lonely strains of melody in the indifferent sunlight. You can find them on the web at thefarstairs.com and YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. I'll have links to all of these in the show notes. Before we get to the last bit here, I uh, have to say something about submissions. We accept them, and pretty much anything too. Music, stories, poetry, fiction, even just an idea. I'd love to hear about it all, and you can reach me at denverorbit at gmail.com. I'd say you can use the submission form on the website, but I don't think it's working. I don't know how to fix it. In addition to email, I'm also on Facebook too, at facebook.com slash denverorbit, so you can drop me a line there. Finally, I met poet Joy Sawyer through writer Jenny Lynn from episode 20, and she stopped by to share some of her amazing poems with me. And, well, now she's sharing them with you. I'm Joy Rullier Sawyer. I teach at Lighthouse Writers Workshop here in Denver, which is an independent creative writing school. I have um, one poetry book out called Tongues of Men and Angels. It's published by White Violet Press. And I also have a new book coming out in the fall. It's called Lifeguards, and it will be published by Conundrum Press. Hazy June, smudged sunset, young memorial baseball field, bottom of the fifth. I wasn't in the rickety aluminum stands when Billy Kratzer hurled the wild pitch, hit my brother square in the eye, but somehow I knew. I knew the split second our ivory 69 caddy lurched too quickly into our driveway, shuddering black exhaust, that my brother was hurt. I remember this much, my father staggering up the walk, a gangly burden in his arms, an oval grass stain on the right knee, one striped sock pushed down to the shoe, a dirty shoelace undone. All week it was touch and go, I swaddled thick in greasy ointment and gauze, bedroom dark as pitch, and such awful quiet. Not until old Doc Marshall finally unwound the bandages, my brother blinking, smiling, nodding his head, did we know he would heal, play baseball again. This past October, World Series, Phillies versus Rays, top of the ninth. When Chase Utley smacks the ball hard down the second base line, past the shortstop, past the fresh young fielders diving into grass, I suddenly remember, not the bruised twilight, the car door slamming, the low hushed tones of my mother's voice, but the feeling, the one that returns to me in odd moments, both sweet and hard how I would gladly pluck out my own eyes if it meant my brother could see. Interrupted Sestina, Times Square. Billy boy, damn it. I hate the freaking way you died. Was it that last needle in your vein? 
or your neck broken when you fell down the crack house stairs. I don't care. So this is how it ends. This is how it ends for you, friend, when your heart was a joyous street dance, like the bang of those copper kettles you drummed, gleaming in the sun. I remember you in Central Park, sitting cross-legged at sunset, arm around a dazed addict, promising hope hadn't died. Later, you ate pastrami with mustard on rye got a huge bang out of teasing pink-haired punkers in black. Only broken teeth hinted of your crazy past. Yet even your closest friends miss the new signs. Long sleeves in July, trips to urgent care. We drank A&W root beer. You hugged me, said, take care. You, an addict turned preacher, feeding homeless with a sunny volunteer like me. Bronx slum king, wheat belt queen, friends. We both knew grace embraces those whose dreams die hard, knew you didn't need a heroin habit to be broken beyond repair. Today, I heard my screen door in Nyack bang shut, thought it was you, but it was the only awful clash and bang between what should be and what is. Are you free now from care, Billy? Free to fly kite-winged and laughing above this broken earth? Because I'm still here facing the fallen world, hoping each sunrise is my Easter, the orange heat of resurrected dreams. You died. So you know how I'm going to live now, Billy boy, friend? Next time I see your shadowed eyes across the room, I'll roll a broken stone away from its hidden tomb, let a choking heart breathe, let sunlight flood the darkened place. Remember your forgotten name, friend, your absent story told in every empty space. This is the title poem from my new book, Lifeguards. That summer after ninth grade, the year I trudged each day, head down, through the trophy case corridor that led to first period algebra. The year the high school bullies slouched in ripped vinyl chairs, hooted and snarled their dirty greetings as I faded into glass. I gave a book of my poems to Michael. Michael the Lifeguard, 19, bronze skin and hazel eyes, signed my yearbook next to the photo of him shooting a clutch basket. You are a beautiful person, he said. Please don't ever change. I printed each poem into his own book, red hardback, clean white pages and blue pen, careful to write a poem just for him. I'm sitting awake at 2 a.m., feeling bad because someone stole your St. Jude medal. Basically, people are good, but sometimes clods clog the filters of life. I was only the basket room worker, sliding clothes and keys and wet towels through slots in the peeling plaster wall, until the day Michael read his poem hopped over the front desk in his orange Speedo, grabbed me, twirled me around, kissed me lightly on the lips. I'd never tasted gratitude before.
He placed the keys to the pool in my sweaty palm. Why don't you hold these for me until we close, he said. We'll be the last ones here. I jingled those keys all afternoon, sang Bee Gees in my head, right up to the moment Michael locked the doors and walked me to my car. I'd prayed all summer the bullies would target someone else, but inside my Monte Carlo that day was a pile of newspapers, rotting bananas, and eggs. Michael grabbed the pool's metal trash can, polka-dotted pink with bubblegum, stuffed it full of the stench, hurled it into the back seat. Then he drove straight to the culprit's house. While I leaned against the still-running car, he hauled the trash can up the steps and rang the bell. When the boy walked out, a boy who'd caused my knees to knock in terror, a boy who'd shattered my thoughts into poetry, Michael said, I think this is yours, then dumped the garbage onto his front porch. We howled all the way to Dairy Queen, where we ordered foot-long conies with chili and peanut butter shakes, sat on the still warm roof of my car, barely touching, as he traced my skin with his honeyed eyes. Joy Rolier Sawyer is the author of two poetry collections, Tongues of Men and Angels and Lifeguards, forthcoming this fall from Conundrum Press, and is a recent Pushcart Prize nominee. Her work appears in such diverse publications as Books and Culture, Light Quarterly, Lilliput Review, New York Quarterly, St. Petersburg Review, Theology Today, and others. Joy holds an MA from New York University, where she was the recipient of the Herbert Rubin Award for Outstanding Creative Writing. She's taught at the University of Denver and Goddard College, and currently teaches at Lighthouse Writers' Workshop here in Denver. Her website is joyrolliersawyer.com. And guess where you can find that link? That's right, in the show notes. And I think that's it for this one. Denver Orbit is edited, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Madison. I'll be back in a couple of weeks or something. I don't know what yet, but it'll be good. I can promise you that. You just wait and see, mister. Bye.